Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that the lessons of this text would impact upon our hearts. Lord, may we hear your word. May we not harden our hearts. And may we not be disobedient. But may we enter into the rest that you give us in Christ. Amen. Amen. So, Hebrews 4, we're continuing our journey through Hebrews. We are coming towards the end of chapter 4. We need context. We're coming today to a passage that is very, very well known. It's not too many people who've been Christians for too long who haven't heard that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And as often is the case in our modern church, when we love to quote verses in isolation from their context, that when we take a well-known verse and we put it back into its context, there's a whole new light to it. Sometimes we've totally misunderstood the verse. Other times we just haven't got the depth that would be available within the context. And it's the latter that is the case today. I think that as we look at this very familiar verse in the context of Hebrews 4, we're going to see it very differently. In fact, we're going to see one or two words very, very differently. Although the gist of it as a whole is, is very much the same, it's not like we've misunderstood it, but we're going to see how much powerful, how much more powerful it's going to be in its context. So we need to have our context. What's been going on here is that really from the latter part of chapter 3 and on, the focus has been on the quotation of Psalm 95. And when we first came across it, we looked at it in detail, and we saw that Psalm 95 was a psalm where everybody was coming together to worship, and it was like, come together, let's worship the Lord. And there was this shift from how wonderful it is to come and worship God. There was this shift that happened midway through Psalm 95 where we were reminded that we're sheep. And sheep have a tendency to wander off. We're the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. He is still him. He's sovereign. He's good. And he has us in his hand. But the other side of that equation is that we're sheep in his hand. We have a tendency to wander off and to go our own way. And in that shift from God's sovereignty to our tendency to wander, he then in Psalm 95, David reminds us of the tendency that we have to wander, the tendency we have to be disobedient, the tendency we have to harden our hearts. And he takes our focus in Psalm 95 to Numbers 14. And really, the Old Testament passage that's really girded the foundation of Hebrews 4 has been Numbers 14. That time at Kadesh Barnea where after a year of wandering through the wilderness, they come to the brink of the promised land. There they are, one year in the wilderness, and they're there at the brink. They're there, ready to take the land. And the spies go into the land, and they come back, all 12 of them, saying, to, to a large degree, the same thing. This is everything that God had promised us. These people, though, are scary. They're powerful. They're giants, in fact. And they are military, uh, very strong. And everybody agreed on those points. 
What they disagreed on was the conclusion. Ten of them said, if we go and try and take this land, we're going to get destroyed. And Joshua and Caleb said, no, no, no. God's promised us this land. He will give us this land. Everything he said about the land is true. We just need to go in and we need to take it. And sadly, the people sided with the ten. They hardened their hearts. And that's why the wilderness wandering went from one year to 40 years. They missed their opportunity. And we're going to talk more about Numbers 14 in a minute this week because it becomes crucial for understanding this part. But the reason, as I've said several times the last few weeks, the reason that, that uh, the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 95 and does not quote Numbers 14 directly is because Psalm 95 is a, is a congregation coming together and being reminded, when you hear the Bible, when you hear God's Word, do not harden your hearts or you're going to be like those people. You're going to be judged, you're going to go around in circles, you're going to be in the wilderness, and in the context of chapter 4, you won't have rest. They could have just gone in across the Jordan, into the promised land, taken the promised land, and had the rest that was promised to them. But they didn't. That generation died in the wilderness. That generation died in the wilderness. And Psalm 95 is saying to the people of Israel, centuries later, don't do the same thing. When you come together as a congregation, when the word of God is spoken, is preached, is taught, is read, pay attention. Don't harden your hearts. Hear what God's saying. Repent of your sin. Don't turn against him. When he says things you don't want to hear, listen and obey. Because otherwise, you like them will miss out. And there is these times when we have to definitively choose who we're going to follow. And that's why in chapter 4 of Hebrews, we've seen him repeat what he repeated in chapter 3. In chapter 3, he started the quotation from Psalm 95. He said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Then at the end of it, when he's explained it, he says in chapter 3, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And then we've seen in chapter 4 last week, verse 7 again, today saying through David long afterwards in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Forty years in the wilderness, these Jewish people have had forty years from the death of Christ, and now the temple is about to be destroyed. And if they compromise, like the people in the wilderness compromise, if they go back to the synagogue, if they go back to Judaism, then when the city of Jerusalem is destroyed, they will die with them. And I told you last week, I wrestle with this. Are there days in our lives where we have to make a decision and we don't get to make that decision again? Clearly, for some people, there are. 
once that temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, the book of Hebrews that was pleading with them not to go back to Judaism. They couldn't have heard it because they were dead, those who compromised. Last week I said to you, maybe today is your day. If you're back again today, it obviously wasn't. You're here again this week. But there are moments in our lives, I think, where we make decisions and we choose a direction. And we have to choose, are we going to listen to the ten or the two of the spies? Are we going to trust God in the midst of difficulty and uncertainty? Are we going to trust God when we disagree, when it doesn't make sense? Or are we going to trust ourselves? Are we going to trust what we see with our eyes? These are the decisions that we have to make. And also, by way of context, we're dealing here in chapter 4 with this concept of rest. And I said it last time, and I will repeat it again because it's important as we go in. That rest is very much like salvation. And just as elsewhere in Scripture, salvation has a past, a present, and a future component, so does rest. They have found rest because they have been saved. They need to have rest now, meaning that they stop their struggle with sin and they walk by the Spirit. Being saved was going from the slavery of Egypt into the wilderness. Being, finding the rest in the present tense was going into the promised land. And then we had here, we touched it briefly at the end of last time in verse, uh, verse 8, uh, or verse 9 rather, um, no, verse 8, sorry. Uh, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And that, my friends, is where we pick up today. We'll just rush through what we touched on briefly last time, uh, finish this off, and then we'll pick up properly in verse 11. But Joshua did get rest. He gave them rest from their enemies to some degree. But what the author is saying here, there's another sense in which Joshua didn't get rest. So there was a present rest where they did enter the promised land when they weren't fighting their enemies. There was that present rest. That's our sanctification. But there's always a future rest. Today, if you struggle with sin, hint, that's all of us, then you haven't got your final rest. Hasn't come yet. It's to come. There is a final rest. And that's why... He references here in verse 9, so then there remains, there always remains, this Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And so the discussion of rest comes to this conclusion in verse 10. We know that they have found rest. They're saved. He's preaching to them as brothers and sisters in Christ. He's pleading with them. And that's our main focus, for them to have rest in their sanctification now. You are free from sin, do no longer walk in it. Don't harden your hearts now that you've got your ticket to heaven and miss out on what it truly is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. But there is also, as he summarizes here, this final rest. Though Joshua had that present rest, there was 
another rest that was to come. And the analogy here is used of God and the Sabbath. And that points us to Genesis. It points us to the beginning, which is going to be relevant contextually a little bit later in a few minutes. He points them to Genesis where God did the work of creation and then he rested. So he did his work and when his work of creation was complete, he rested. Do you have any work to do? Do you have God's Holy Spirit within you? Are you gifted? If the, the, by the way, the answer to those two questions is the same. If you're saved and you have His Spirit, then you are gifted. Because that's what the Spirit provides us with our gifts. And the gifts, as we know, come together corporately. In a church, we don't have one person who has all the gifts, and we don't have anyone who's a Christian who doesn't have a gift. And so we all come together to, as I preach, I equip you so that you are enabled to do that work of ministry one to another, to enable us all to mature one another, to grow into the likeness of Christ. So if you are here and you're saved and you have the Spirit and you're living and breathing, your work's not done. And you haven't entered into your final rest. But the day will come when this frail body that houses you will no longer be with you. The sin that it contains will no longer be with you. You will see him face to face who is without sin and you in that moment at last shall be free from the struggle with sin. And that will be our final rest when our work is done. So what's he saying in referencing this final rest to the Hebrews? He's saying this, look, your work now isn't done. Choose this day who you will serve. Experience the rest you can have now. And that will, as he's already said, will give you the assurance that when the time comes to an end, that you will have a final rest. If you're experiencing the rest from the struggle with sin, if you're starting to overcome the sins in your life that have entangled you, if you're starting to see things the way that God sees things, if you're submitting to his word, then those things are rest and they should give you assurance of your final rest. And that's where he is in this moment. And so in bringing this all to a conclusion, we then come to verse 11. And we start to get close to this famous text in verse 12, but let's follow on this train of thought. Let us therefore, you see the connection with the previous section, strive to enter that rest. Doesn't that seem reminiscent of Philippians, where Paul says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? There is, there is with this present rest, this present sanctification, there is a striving, there is a working we don't just sit back and say, oh, well, it's God's work, so we'll just sit around and maybe we'll become holy at some point. No, it is God's work, but that doesn't negate the fact that we must strive and we must work. And that's why he's preaching to them and telling them there is this very real danger that you're going to hear my words and then hearing them, you're going to say, nah. You're just going to harden your heart. You don't want to know. Too difficult. Don't like it. Don't want to do it. 
And he says, you've got to work, you've got to strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That's why, for an entire chapter and a bit, he's been emphasizing Psalm 95, Numbers 14, pointing us back to Kadesh Barnea, because what he's saying is, what they did, you can do. What Psalm 95 was saying is, what they did, you can do. What the writer to the Hebrews is saying, what they did, you can do. And what I'm saying to you is, what they did, we can do. We can stand on the brink of overcoming sins in our lives and say, no, I don't believe it. Too difficult. The army's too strong. It won't happen. We'll just end up failing. We'll just get beaten. Don't trust God. Very, very easy for us to fall into that kind of disobedience. Folks, there's some context for you. Verse 12 is going to look very different right now. I know many of you know this so well, this verse. Many of you probably have recited this verse for decades. It's going to look different, I think, for you today. Let's look at it. For, you see, it's, whenever you memorize a Bible verse that starts with for or therefore, you know that you don't understand it unless you understand the context it's found in. Because the very first word is telling you, to understand this verse, you need to know where it's found. You need to know what's come before. So in other words, when he says here, for, he's linking this crucial discussion on the word of God with everything that's preceded, which is why I've taken so long this morning to get, make sure we have that context in our minds. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now this fits contextually perfectly. Because everything, right the way back from the beginning of Psalm 95 being quoted, again, he quotes Psalm 95 and not Numbers 14, he quotes a passage that references Numbers 14, because... He's using Numbers 14 the same way that Psalm 95 is. He's doing it in the context of people hearing the word and choosing to believe or not believe. The land is ready to take. Do you believe or not believe? That's the context. So what he's saying here with the word of God is he's saying the word of God is living and active. It had an effect in Numbers 14. The effect was the same in 90, Psalm 95. The effect is the same for the people who are hearing the sermon to Hebrews initially. And it is true for us today. That the Word of God, because it is living and active, active meaning in the sense of powerful, it will accomplish and it will do what it's going to do. And, and this is how it's being used in this context. He says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, the word sword here and the imagery of the sword is very interesting. And I think that this is where those of you who are familiar with this passage are going to have your understanding significantly enhanced. Let's go back to Numbers 14, because that's our context. Numbers 14. 
Everything here has been about that event in Numbers 14. Everything he's saying is saying, you're in danger of the same disobedience. Everything he's saying is saying, don't be like them. This is the complete context of the passage. Okay? And there, they heard the word of God and they rejected it. And Psalm 95 is saying, when you hear the word of God, don't do that. Okay? So, word of God is part of the context of Numbers 14, but so is sword. So is sword. Look what happens. I won't go through the whole thing. We've done it lots of times recently. And there is the judgment upon them. And they're going to basically be stuck in the wilderness for 40 years. And I'll pick up reading from Numbers 14 and verse 36. And the men whom Moses sent out to spy in the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land, they died by plague before Yahweh. Only those men who went to spy out the land, uh, sorry, of the men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, a son of Jephunneh, remained alive. Now listen, if it wasn't clear who was right and who was wrong, at that point, I think it's pretty clear, isn't it? Ten of them come back and say, no, we shouldn't go into the land, we're going to get destroyed, you're going you're to die, your children are going to die, we should go back to Egypt, this is just all such a big mess. They drop down dead by plague in front of the people. And only the two who said, no, we should take the land, stay alive. Now, what's the lesson? What's the lesson that you learn from that? The lesson is obey God. Surely, that's the lesson, right? God says you have the land, go take the land, right? <laughs> so what do the people do? Verse 39. When Moses told the words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. That's, by the way, not just mourning over the death of the ten by the plague, but mourning over the fact that they are going to be stuck in the wilderness and they aren't going to ever see the promised land. And when they rose early in the morning and they went up to the heights of the hill country saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. <laughs> in other words, yesterday we made a real big boo-boo. We messed up. We didn't go into the land. Now we're going to be stuck in the wilderness for, for the rest of our lives. We've seen the ten people who told us not to go into the land, who we listened to, dead by plague. So now we're going to put it right by going into the land. Or to put it another way, we're going to disobey again. See, it makes so much sense, doesn't it? We didn't go in the land, that was bad. So what we're going to do today is, because we sinned, we're going to put it right by going into the land. No, no, God's now said you don't get to go. He's not with you. Sin leads to sin, leads to sin, leads to sin. Which is why we take it seriously. But Moses said, why are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? 
their eyes were on, we didn't do this, and so now we're going to do this, rather than being on the issue, which is one, a very simple one, obedience. You didn't obey God yesterday, so put it right by obeying him today. Don't disobey him today. He says, do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites, the Canaanites, are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. Because you have turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. What do you think they did? They presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, though neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down, defeated them, and pursued them even to Hormah, way back into the wilderness. Listen, this is how you understand Hebrews 4 and verse 12. Should we turn back there? When you understand that he hasn't just said, oh, I've got a really good idea how we can explain the Bible. It's like a sword. It cuts. That's good. I'll put that in there. No, no, no. His mind is in Numbers 14, and Numbers 14 ends with the reference to sword. And that's why sword is in Hebrews 4, verse 12. Okay? So let's see it in that context. These people said, we're going to do the right thing now. We didn't do it yesterday. We're going to do the right thing now. We're going to do, go into the land today. We didn't do it yesterday. That was bad. We're going to do it right today. We're going to do it right today. They, in their hearts and minds, justified their decision. They would, could argue that their decision was the right decision. Made good excuses, good reasons, what have you. There is one issue, friends. What does God say? Do it or don't do it. It's that simple. What does God say? And what's the message of Satan? Did God really say? Always trying to get us to, to double-guess God. Always trying to get us to doubt the veracity of what he says is right and what he says is wrong, what he says we should do, what he says we shouldn't do. Always trying to get us to fall because decisions have to be made on the word of God. So these people, they're there saying, well, we, we're going to go and take the land now. We don't want to miss out on the land. Were their intentions good? Were their thoughts good thoughts? No, they weren't. This was not the act of people who said, oh, we disobeyed God, that was terribly bad, now we're going to make a real effort to obey him by taking the land. Because if they were going to make a real effort to obey him, they wouldn't have gone in to take the land because he said not to. Now, what was going on here was this, that they wanted the land, but they didn't want to go in right now because these people were scary. And now that they're realizing that they've lost their opportunity to ever get in the land, they want to go into the land. You know? Kind of toddler behavior, isn't it, you know? They don't, they don't want something until they're told they can't have it, and now they really want it. And there's nothing else that they, don't, they want other than that one thing. They fixate on it. That's what's going on here. And how do we know that? How can I be so bold as to say, oh, I know what they were thinking of? 
because of how they responded to God's word. Look at Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. By the way, if you wanted to have a theological treatise on what difference there is, if any, between a soul and a spirit, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Just as, it, just as if, you, in case you're a butcher or some sort of physiologist, and you want me to talk about the difference between joints and marrow, that's not going to happen either. Because it's not about soul, spirit, joints, marrow. It's about the two together, thoughts and intentions. In the same way that a sword can go right to the heart of a person spiritually, the Bible can do that. Just as a literal sword can go right deep into the organs. In the same way the Bible can expose our thoughts and our intentions. We just want to obey God. Oh, that's great then. He's just told you not to go into the land. Don't go. Oh, well, we're going to go because we think it's the right thing to do. Bible's just exposed you. It's just revealed you. The sword has shown you, just like the sword showed what they were like in Numbers 14. You see, when we look at Hebrews 4.12, we say, ah, oh, the word of God is like a sword, and we think this is this really positive thing. No, it's not. It's saying to the people, if you disobey the word of God, you will be exposed. It's an exposer. The sword exposed them. We're with God. Well, the sword of the Amalekites suggests that you weren't. It's a very painful, brutal, shameful lesson to learn. The word of God is a sword, folks. When you hear it, don't harden your hearts. Don't choose disobedience. Let God speak to you through his word and make a decision who you're going to serve. It's that simple. Because the word of God, it discerns, it judges, it exposes your thoughts and your intentions. Because you can plead and beg and explain all you like, but if you don't obey, you don't obey. And if you do obey, you do obey. It's an exposer. Why do I keep using the word exposed? Well, look at verse 13. And, you see it's connected. Isn't that bizarre how we memorize one verse that starts with four, ignoring the stuff that comes before, and ignoring the verse after that starts with and, which obviously connects it. And, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You see, the idea of being found out, the idea of the word exposing us, what's the other Old Testament passage that we've seen referenced here today? The book of Genesis, creation. And what happens soon after creation? There's exposure. 
Who told you you were naked? Says God. How come, how come they were suddenly aware of their nakedness? How come it was suddenly, suddenly a problem? Because there was sin, because they disobeyed the word of God. God says, don't eat from that fruit. Satan says, did God really say that? Oh, I'm sure it'll be all right. Look at all the good stuff. Look how reasonable it is. Look at all these wonderful arguments. Go eat. So they eat, and the word of God, don't eat that fruit, exposes them. That's what he's pointing to here. So really, this whole verse about the word of God being powerful and stuff is a warning verse. It's a warning passage, just like the whole chapter is a warning passage. It's saying, look, when you hear the word, the word is going to expose you. You can pretend to be holy and godly, but when you choose not to do what God says, when God says this is sin and you say, no, it's not, you ex you, you've exposed yourself. You've, you've shown yourself. Or rather, more accurately, the word has exposed you. And so he says to them, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Listen, I'm so grateful that all of our sins aren't exposed to everybody, aren't you? <laughs> that would be a terrible thing in so many ways. If I saw you walking down the street, I'd probably walk to the other side to avoid you, which is probably a good thing because you'd want to be there to avoid me. You know, I mean... We, our sins typically aren't all exposed, but they are before God. That's the point here. God sees everything. We can't cheat. We can't lie to him. We can't, we can't pretend before him. Oh, said the people, we'll go take the land just like you told us to. You can't pull the wool over God's eyes. He speaks, and his speech, his word exposes our thoughts, our motives, our intentions, our desires, it exposes it. That's the whole point of the analogy. That just like a sword can just go in and cut in and get right to it so that these thoughts, these intentions, what our motives are, that we hide away inside of us, the Word of God can get right in there. Just like the sword of the Amalekites exposed the sin of the people of Israel. Well, that's an encouraging message, isn't it? But it, it, it's a necessary one. Next week, we come to, contrastly, one of the most encouraging passages. And I want to read on so you can see where he's taking this. He says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. In other words, look, it's not like we're just being told stop this, don't do that, smack, smack, bad, bad, you know, there is, there is a positive to this. It's not simply, don't do this or you'll get the sword. It's, don't you see how much better Jesus is? And that's where he's taking us next time, and that's where we're going. And, and I want you to see that now, so that when he starts to talk about how this high priest is, is able to sympathize with our weaknesses who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is a deeply encouraging passage that we're coming towards. But there is a place 
for us to say one last time. Today, when you hear God's word, and every day when you hear God's word, don't harden your heart. Don't second guess God. Obey him. Decide to agree with him. Decide to walk with him. And together as a congregation, we need to decide to do that. We need to be able to walk with God. We need to help one another. And I, and I, and I mentioned this last time and I'll end with it again today. Notice throughout chapters 3 and 4, again and again, he's talking to them corporately. He specifically mentions, don't let anyone get left behind. Exhort one another every day, chapter 3, verse 13. Let us together help one another. Help one another to walk as we should walk. When someone comes to you with their sin, that's not for exposing. That's for you to... It's been exposed. They've agreed. <laughs> They're saying it's sin. It's for you to come alongside and to help them. To, to help them overcome it so that when it's your turn, someone will help you. It's about us as a family coming together and saying, we won't have sin. We're going to help one another overcome sin because we want to walk as Christ walked. We want to be more like him. And we do not want the consequences of hardening our hearts and disobeying. So when that word of God comes to you, when it pierces your heart, when you, when you hear things in the word you don't want to hear, make a decision. Make a decision to obey the word, lest you be pierced and your intentions be exposed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that, uh, that you have given us this word. That we, more than any other generation in the history of the world, have better access to your word. We have a complete canon. We have it in our own language in hundreds of different translations. We have access to Bible study tools and aids. And yet, sometimes we just use these resources to play the game of did God really say? The word will show whose side we're on, which camp we choose, whether we obey or disobey. Father, may we be found to be obedient. May we be found to humble ourselves before your word. And may we walk in your word, in your spirit, putting aside that sin that so easily entangles us. As we are able to do by the indwelling Holy Spirit that you have given us. Amen.